I love my little girls more than anything, and I said to myself, oh, no, don't, you can't, don't say that. But I had underestimated him. He went on, I would rather see my little girls die now, still believing in God, than have them grow up under communism and one day die a new woman. I think that they would get 90% of the vote. Okay. Whatever the fuck this is. Okay. This goes in front of the interview. All right. So anyway, when you were on the Disney cruise for only gay men. <laughs> Do they have those? You're the one who told me they exist. <laughs> I don't know. I, think I don't so. know if that would be a Disney thing. I think Disney's gay friendly. They made Frozen. So what do you think about that? Um, have you seen it? Yeah, so I was really surprised by... You know, the Playboy Cardi feature, you know, he came out and he was wearing like clown paint, like he was the Joker and he had like braids and shit. So, welcome um, back to the left is dead. And the other thing I was really surprised by was Jack Harlow. And because he's kind of like just the crazy white boy of the year. Yeah, know? I'm here with my friend who's going by some alias. I don't know. Kanye West. It's Polish. No, he says it in the interview, so he can't get away from it. Anyway, I'm here with. Jakob, I'm an immigrant, so can't say I'm racist, against Poles. Jakob is here, and Jakob is here to help me with an interview. Um, I hope you all enjoy it because it's actually relevant this time. We're on time. Don't get used to it, but enjoy an interview about Ukraine. My shitty friend. Johnny doesn't know. Johnny doesn't know. The war holds a fake worse than death and is so. Johnny doesn't know. Johnny doesn't know. By signing for war after hell, we'll go. Johnny feels no more. Johnny hears no more. No, Johnny isn't dead. It's much worse in his head. A model with a sigh. Well, Johnny wants to die. But no one can hear lost in darkness and fear. Johnny hears no more. Johnny hears no more. No, Johnny. All right. The date is February 23rd. And this is, I'm going to say my name's Gwumke as special guest host of The Left is Dead. And Jim is here with me. <sighs> Welcome back. Um, well, we kind of... Uh rush through something today you know um we wanted to speak to somebody uh on the current event that is kind of consuming the entire world obviously everyone's panicked and shitting themselves and people don't understand how world wars would look anymore obviously so uh it's time to talk about ukraine and we have with us uh <clears throat> kyle antelone of your vote i know you from anti-war um and i have read you have a podcast too. What else, you know, you can plug up front and in, at the rear here. So yeah, uh, I'm opinion ed, opinion editor at antiwar.com, uh, news editor at the Libertarian Institute, and then the co-host of the Conflicts of Interest podcast with Connor Freeman and Will Porter. Oh man! All right. Yeah. Well, we're fans of Will Porter, so I'd say I, I definitely yeah I listened actually now that I think about it. I didn't even think yeah. Oh, well, that's cool, man. Um, yeah, and I've enjoyed uh, some of your work for Antiwar. I know I've been called to comment on some of it on, like, Spodnik and stuff like that. So, like, I'm familiar with it. And, you know, uh, I, I've seen some stuff on Afghanistan and stuff like that, I think, where it was. But, yeah, uh, today we're talking about the big one, which is Ukraine, obviously. And um, this is 
year eight of a sort of cold war standoff low intensity civil war in ukraine so i guess let's start off do you just want to bring us up to speed on how we got here i know that's a lot but it's a condensed history of some you know from when people stopped caring to when they started caring again yeah so um i mean if you go back to winter olympics ago uh, for maybe that's a good timeline for some people. Uh, there, the Olympics were in Sochi, Russia. And during those Olympic Games, there was a lot of things going on in Ukraine. And ultimately, uh, the government was overthrown. And that was a month's worth of work of the U.S. administration, mainly led by uh, Joe Biden was the head of that file, Victoria Newland. Jeffrey Pyatt and a few other Obama administration officials, they put together this uh, protest movement and coup uh, in Ukraine, the Euromaidan. They uh, overthrew the the uh, at the time leader and end up, uh, you know, replacing him with, uh, you know, what what they want to be a sop puppet, right? Because I think they want Ukraine ultimately to shift into uh, the Western sphere with NATO and uh, Ukraine. So sorry about my dog, by the way, he's, uh, okay. he just wants to be involved in the podcast. Um, anyways, yeah, so uh, with, with, you know, that happening in 2014, uh, the uh, government that the U.S. put into Ukraine was very anti-ethnically Russian. And so the problem that created was uh, a, a separatist movement started in eastern Ukraine, right? Because, you know, the, the government was anti-ethnically Russian. Eastern Ukraine has a greater population of uh, ethnic Russians. And so that eventually, you know, leads to the particular regions of Donbass and Luhansk, uh, or the Donbass in particular, and then the two uh, sub-states in there will be Luhansk and Donetsk. And so they have now declared independence. And yeah, yeah. and so that's, uh, I, you know, that was eight years ago that they, you know, became separatists. Since then, the U.S. has increased their military support. Uh, Russia has um, continued its support for um for the rebels in Ukraine are the separatists, whatever you want to call them. Um, I saw somebody call them insurgents. That doesn't really seem right. Like they do hold territory and like run a government and everything, you know, that. Yeah, right. You know, that's one thing that people talked about, you know, saying even if like Russian troops, which isn't clear, are in the Donbass right now, for the past eight years, this territory has existed without any uh, help from the Kiev government at all, right? So that's all really important. Um, should we talk about Minsk or do you want to? Yeah, like... I, mean, I would say first, real quick, is like as you said, like um, they're cut off, and like I don't think they're like super. Re- you know, they obviously do trade with Russia, but I don't think they're super reliant on them the way that you know people portray it as. But as you can see, uh, you want to talk a little bit real quick about you know how this relates to like Crimea. You know, the strategy that they're kind of trying to deploy again, like right now. Do you see like the relations between like Crimea and like Georgia and stuff like that in 2008? I definitely um, think that's yeah a possibility. So the other thing that happened in 2014 after uh, you know the U.S. had the coup government in Ukraine is you had you know 
know, the Donbass region that went into rebellion, but then the uh, Crimean Peninsula was just kind of annexed by Russia without violence. You know, they used their soldiers to drive out the Ukrainian military, right. uh, but nobody was killed, right? And I think actually, th this is, I think, an important stat to note to understand what the actual dynamics are like in Ukraine. I think 50% of the Ukrainian military defected to Russia when they took uh, the Crimean Peninsula. And so it's not just that the Ukrainian soldiers all packed up and went back to Kiev. They just stayed and changed uniforms, right? That's right. that's kind of interesting. And I, I, I think it says a lot. And so uh, a lot of that had to do with the uh, Russian naval base at Sevastopol. It's a you know city on the Crimean Peninsula. It's a key naval base for Russia. When uh, the government that the U.S. put in Ukraine took over, one of the things they threatened to do was kick the Russians out of that naval base. And Russia said, absolutely no. Um, and you and that's uh, and so rather than, I guess, fighting over the naval base, they just decided to keep the whole Crimean Peninsula. And it does, you know, the Crimean Peninsula, while it does, I guess, jet off into like the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov and everything, it, it's not very, the Kerch Strait is very short. And, and so Russia just built a bridge over it. And it, it's not literally, you know, they, they just built a bridge. And, and so now it's just a part of Russia. And, you know, I, me and Will Porter actually wrote an article this week on it. And one of the things that we observe is, you know, for two or for eight years, the Donbass, you know, while there's been a loose ceasefire, the Minsk agreement, there's been a lot of shelling, a lot of sniper fire going on, a lot of civilians being killed. The infrastructure there has been decimated, wherein Crimea, Russia has just invested a few billion dollars. And it's not the most significant thing in the world. I'm not trying to make it out like, oh, Vladimir Putin, what a generous man or anything like that. But I mean, the conditions in Crimea have generally improved over the past eight years in respect to like infrastructure and all that, at least where in the Donbass has been absolutely devastated. So uh, it is yeah. you know, kind of interesting how this has played out. I think Putin would have a reason to make people in the Crimea happy. You know what I mean? I, there, there'd be a reason to do that. He wants them to be assimilated as, you know, back into like, hey, you're welcome here. Like, calm down, you know? And I think the military assets are something big too, like uh, the port in Damascus that, you know, suddenly when ISIS is in the suburbs of Damascus, it's like, well, it's time to talk about what's going on here. And we're mm -hmm. stepping in to provide air cover, right? Because like, this has gone too far. And I think that was like part of the thing in Ukraine, like you said, the threats to close the base were like, no, all right, that's enough. Like, and yeah, I think we've reached a point here where again, this Ukrainian government, you know, they've kind of gone through this history, you know, going into Minsk where they've begged for like assistance and like self-defense, but what's happened after every like ceasefire treaty they've made. You want to go into yeah. that a little bit? Yeah. And so just I, I think to expand on that point you're making and just to say if, if Putin really just does like go and recognize the independence of the Donbass, that does seem like straight out of the Russian playbook that we we saw in 2008 with Georgia, like you mentioned in Syria, where he's, you know, certainly anchored more ties in the Middle East with his intervention there uh, in Crimea in 2014, where if the West goes too far and crosses too many Russian red lines, like trying to, you know, put jihadists in charge of uh, Syria or, you know, inviting NATO 
are yeah uh, NATO for uh, Georgia or Ukraine, then he's going to to you know really respond in some way and and do a little bit like change some borders or something like that. So if that's what he does here, then that's the case. Now, if he really like goes and takes like half the Ukrainian state or uh, all, all of it like goes to Kiev, like some people are thinking, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to say like, that's definitely not going to happen. Uh, he is spending a hell of a lot of money to put all these military assets. And so, you know, when we're dropping that kind of cash and it, it's been damaging to the Russian economy, um, you, you know, he might be looking to get a lot out of it. I don't know. But, you know, it, it does seem like th those moves would be matching with, uh, you know, what you're saying in Georgia and Syria. I wonder um, what you think, like, what relation does it have to the fact that Putin's on his way out, allegedly? You know, do you think this has some, like, domestic purpose, too? And, you know, oh, like, think of, like, Erdogan yeah. and the Kurds, you know? Like, what's this, what could be his angle at home with this, like, um, aggression, you know, or, like, this giant buildup yeah so call it aggression because i don't know i'm not sure how i guess how long uh putin does plan to stay in power because I, I think he does have the option to stay in power past 26 2026 that right he was last left in 2020 so he would get six years i think 2026 would be the end of his current term anyways assuming oh. that he doesn't choose to stay in office past then uh, yeah, he may be, you know, looking to like do something to kind of cement a little bit better legacy for himself. You know, the West is always, you know, looking at everything and trying to paint Putin as Hitler. And, you know, anytime you don't stand up to Putin, you're Neville, Ch uh, Neville Chamberlain, right? Well, I mean, if one side of this conflict has to like kind of look and think that their legacy might match up with Neville Chamberlain appeasement, it has to be Putin, right? He's allowed NATO to expand all the way to Russia's borders. The U.S. has put all kinds of missile defense placements in Eastern Europe, including in uh, Poland, you, you know, the Warsaw, right? Oh. This is a Warsaw patch member. And now they have uh, missile silos capable of holding American nuclear capable uh, missiles. This is, you know, absolutely insane. And so you know, I really think Putin can be sitting there looking and saying like, God damn, like my legacy could be absolutely wrecked as, you know, the guy who allowed appeasement in Russia to be walked all over by NATO. And so I think, you know, what we've seen from Putin, particularly in the past, I guess, eight or nine years, has been somebody who's trying to create a meaningful uh, nuclear counterbalance to the United States to make sure that he has nuclear weapons capable of hitting America bat no matter where it puts its nuclear weapon systems and its missile defense systems and everything like that and uh, to assert some on uh, back on the NATO issue and how far NATO has expanded I think that's some of what we're seeing here in Ukraine um, I'm glad you said that because I actually wanted to get to you know the United States involvement and kind of some of like the rhetoric and coverage that has been happening around Ukraine this week like we had a couple, I don't know what you would call it, like fake out invasions. Like they kept saying like every day. Uh, I had a headline here that I want. I uh, saw as of this recording, you know, it's about what uh, we're going on 830 on February 23rd, uh, an article from Time that said that Joe Biden had authorized troops to be deployed. Here's what I got from the New York Times yesterday. 
With theatrical speeches and images of war, the Kremlin's propaganda machine has bombarded Russians with the rationale for invading Ukraine. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Projection. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but like it was saying, um, you know, Joe Biden. Okay, this is from Time Magazine. President Joe Biden ordered American troops attack aircrafts and fighter jets into Eastern Europe to reassure NATO allies and deter further aggression from Moscow. And they're basically just, I mean, I don't know. Can, can we... Uh, Talk about some of the, uh, like, I don't know, fear mongering that's been going on, because that's something that's been yeah. kind of heavy on my mind. And I actually saw like an like an AP NORC poll that said that it was only 26 of them, 26 percent of Americans actually want the United States to play a large role in you, the Ukraine Russian conflict, which I find really interesting. And when you consider how much they've like ramped up the rhetoric I, around. Yeah, this. I've never seen something like this idea of like, they're going to attack tomorrow. They're going to attack tomorrow. I know. They're going to attack tomorrow. <laughs> like what motivates this? And like, who's trying this strategy? Like, I obviously it's impossible to know, but what do you think about this? Like new way of like trying to oh. like, Hey, I bet you won't hit us. Hey, I bet you won't hit us. Can I say, um, you know, this comes back to my uh, universal rule of American politics, which is no matter what the issue is, you always, uh, accuse your enemy of doing whatever you're doing right yeah because when you do that it opens you up for an opportunity to do whatever you know what i'm saying like yeah. it's like yeah. stop hitting yourself but really it's yeah. like you're grabbing their arm and that's you're what like I'm saying. This is, like i bet you won't do it like it's like, exactly it's like a dog barking at you over a fence you know like but yeah what do you think about this new strategy of like trying to lead people to war by just like goading on by just country. setting a date and time yeah, so the, I guess the first thing I want to mention on the media thing, this is the first thing that I think has not COVID off of the pages everywhere throughout the media. It it seeped all the way down to the celebrity pages. You know, Cardi B's now saying unlawable things on, uh, on this situation. And so it's all the way on the celebrity and entertainment pages. And, you know, I think that's quite significant, actually. And, and that means that they're really trying to build up uh, the war rhetoric and it, I don't know if you, you've noticed, but the uh, narrative control that they're trying to do, calling everybody who is at all questioning this, like a Putin puppet or something like that, uh, particularly like the GOP attacking their own has been uh, quite disturbing. But uh, what, what was the, sorry, what was the other question you asked me? Um, oh, I was just like, that? what do you think of like, what's the idea behind this new strategy of just being like, well, they're going to do it. They're going to do it. They're going to. Oh, yeah. So. I guess one could be maybe the administration really did get like some kind of high level intercept in October and knew Putin was like had this secret plan to uh, recognize the independence of the Donbass. I don't know, but it, it seems more likely to me that the Biden administration, particularly with uh, characters like Jade Sullivan and Victoria Newland, uh, are seeing an opportunity here uh, to uh, bloody. Putin's nose, right? If Putin does invade Ukraine, it will be a huge expense on Russia, right? Like this, this won't be easy. Uh, I mean, it depends on what he does and everything like that, how much he takes and but yeah, but I mean, even as much as this cost Russia already just deploying the troops and the economic hits and things like that, you know, that this is all pretty serious. And so um yeah, it, it's just um shit what what was i answering it My seems bad. Like it just seems like they're trying to goad them into it right it's like they yeah, want to push yeah. them into it like 
Well, I guess you guys saw the article in Yahoo probably two months ago now. I think it came out in December about how the CIA ground branch was bringing Ukrainians to somewhere in the southern U.S. and training them in insurgency tactics. And so I think there, there could be a real idea from some people in the uh, Biden administration that they could score a real victory over Russia by getting Putin to uh, invade Ukraine. And, and a couple of things here, not just Russia losing troops and money and this being a black eye for Putin in Ukraine, you know, they see it maybe as an equivalent to Afghanistan, but also for, and I don't know if this plays out the way they think it does, but this is, you know, like a lot of the times, you know, the hot thought that going into Iraq was somehow going to work out, right? So I think that part of their thinking is that this will help to unify or solidify NATO, right? If Russia really is expanding to the West, even as trivial as it is, that, you, you know, I think some people in the administration calculate that, oh, we could use this to get Germany to spend more on military and everything like that. Oh, and Nord Stream, that. that's yeah, huge. I want to touch on that for a minute because, like, I don't think that's going to work. You know what I mean? I don't think that's going to work. Um, I think that Europe particularly like has had their confidence shaken very much. So by like the last, by the years of Trump, but before that, um, you know, when Turkey shot down the Russian plane over, you know, who knows whose territory it never was clear. Right. You know, and NATO just Obama as the head of NATO, whether they say it or not, was like, you're on your own, you negotiate with the Russians. So seeing something like that and seeing that we've seen like article five violated before and they're just like, this country is not really worth it you know like so it seems like ukraine is just like the u.s has put them in this horrible position and the rest of europe especially after like well trump pisses them all off and then you have biden recently with the deal with australia with the submarines you know going behind france's back to sell submarines to australia like these the nato partners are pissed and now you're trying to just like shut off their gas pipeline too so like what do you think that like their view on this is? Do you think they're trying to avoid it too? Because I mean, why wouldn't they? And it, it, like, it, does this end up weakening NATO in the long run? I I tend to think that that's the likely outcome. Uh, I mean, NATO's had a problem for a long time. Even Emmanuel Macron, the French president, called NATO brain dead. Uh, it seems that to attempt to revive nato they just you know slapped a china sticker on the vegetable corpse right and they're just kind of mm -hmm. trying to keep it alive uh and have tried to shift a lot of you know the main threat that nato has to deal with uh is actually china hell i even read that in reason magazine somebody wrote that mm -hmm. um but anyways uh yeah so uh i i don't think it'll work i i, I think eventually what they just built this entire big nord stream 2 pipeline this what multi at least hundreds of millions if not billion dollar project and they're just gonna let the thing rust at the bottom of the sea because the americans don't like that russia took back part of ukraine i mean how how long are the germans gonna play that game you know what i mean i, I just don't I, I don't think it's very long and i think france is likely in a similar position where you know you're going to have poland and the baltic states in particular be very aggressive you're going to have the uk be in a hundred percent 
percent. And then everybody else, I, I think, is going to be fairly agnostic. And, you know, maybe even some opposition, especially when you're looking at like the Romanians or something like that, who have already indicated that they don't want more NATO troops, although then somebody in the government asked for more NATO troops. So it, it goes back and forth. But um yeah, and, and then another thing to just point out, you, you mentioned Turkey is like the probably the best example of just these NATO member states are an absolute mess and have more problems with each other. Uh, Turkey's biggest foreign policy issues are number one, their territorial disputes with fellow NATO member Greece, their intervention occupation, you know, drawing lines across the Cyprus yeah. Island. I don't know about all of that, but I do know yeah, that Turkey's heavily involved there. Yeah, and then being in direct opposition to what the U.S. is trying to do in Syria by backing the jihadists against the, you know, U.S., what we call the diplomatic, enlightened, Western-aligned Kurds. And and so then also on, uh, like, if you look at Greece, the last NATO member state to join was North Macedonia. And they actually had to officially change the name of their country before Greece removed their opposition to North Macedonia joining NATO. Now, look, if the Greeks were really worried about the Russian threat, would they have a major opposition to whatever the hell the technical name in North Macedonia is if they're they're really worried about the big bad Russian bear? That just seems completely absurd to me. And so it as the U.S., I think, gets more and more hostile and aggressive in its economic warfare, not only against Russia, but China and other countries, I think it's going to be harder and harder to unify its loose alliance of states. Like, you know, the, the main players will always go along. Uh, but even Israel says they're in a little bit of a complicated situation here because they maintain pretty strong ties uh, with Russia. China. I mean, that's the thing. Yeah, China is definitely like the Europeans love Chinese technology, and they love the things that the Chinese will get them cheaper than the Americans. You know, and it's they do have. Um, I see them really going their own way, and even Macron and Germany have split to this point because you know he was kind of rejected when he came in and tried to let. Hey, let's run the EU together because we're the two biggest players around, and. Merkel kind of snubbed him on that one. It's like, well, you guys are going to blow this whole thing for yourselves. So I don't know what your plan is. But yeah, at the same time, they're obviously unified on not having a bunch of troops roll through, you know, Eastern Europe into Russia. Um, But do you think this is just, do you think this is a good opportunity for, say, the defense contractors? Like you said, the Cold War that's kind of been targeted at China, you know, it repackages this stuff. And that seems to be all the military knows how to make right now is the Cold War weaponry, right? The things that are, would be deployed on the large European battlefield, the hypothetical battlefield in Eastern Europe. Do you think that this is really kind of a jump back to their dominance of the market over like say tech companies and things like that? These are more traditional arms manufacturers coming back in and showing, you know, they found their chance, they found an opening. Well, I think it's all bleeding together. All, you know, even yeah. a lot of the just artillery rounds now have, uh, like GPS chips in, in um, you know, are, are guided and things like that. So it's not like a, a situation where, you know, if you build a bunch of tanks or something like that, the tech companies aren't gaining in on it. And in fact, I think Google is heavy in the uh, Biden administration. And I'm guessing these tech companies are going to get a lot of Pentagon contracts coming up. Uh, there's 
there's a lot of Biden administration progress focus uh, projects focused on the the tech sector in particular and aligning it with the defense industry. Uh, I there's a pretty good article recently, I think in like Defense News, about how there's several former Trump administration officials who have joined smaller tech firms because they essentially get to direct how the company goes. Right? You you if you're just like you know some lieutenant colonel and you try to go work for Raytheon, well, they'll probably hire you and they'll let you do something, but you're not going to be, you know, senior vice president of aeronautics or anything like that, right? Well, if you go to one of these small tech companies or something like that, they'll make you like vice chair of the board or whatever. And especially because you're the guy that could go to Washington, D.C., talk to your uh, congressman friend who you previously worked in the office for or, you know, whoever you need to in the Pentagon and get a major contract for this company is just massive. Um, you know, after the, the Afghan withdrawal, the, the, uh, major defense contractors did say that they were losing money, uh, from that. And so this is a way to make up for it. And I guess just the last point on this is while a lot of the military buildup is with China, almost all that is what missiles, ships, planes, things like this. Uh, Lloyd Austin just announced this week, uh, sale of, uh, 250 Abrams tanks to Poland. I mean, you're not going to use 250 Abrams tanks in, in China, right? So, yeah. Yeah, not in Poland. There's not that many Poles who can drive, drive a tank. Yeah. yeah, that's true. <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry. But no, no, I think it's just like you see, like, even with the tech integrated into it, I think you see, like, conventional weapons ma manufacturers, like, finally seeing, like, finally, we can force the aircraft carriers on the Navy that they keep telling us not to give them, you know? And like mm -hmm. they just keep shoving these programs through is then because they are basically jobs programs they keep this country afloat to a large part but that's another day jack um what get back to ukraine back to ukraine sort of yeah yeah what i mean so you i was looking at your website your uh, anti-war uh what what do you think is like a good way for people to make themselves useful at this time because it just seems like there's a lot of like really powerful like media sources that's pushing for this. And honestly, like I said earlier, like basically a quarter of the population is fully on board with this, but it's not, but it's like, how do you even um, like engage everybody else? They Since don't. it seems like there are way more people who aren't interested in this conflict at all. At least the United States is part in it. Does yeah, that make sense? I, I mean, I yeah, I think the good news is, is that Americans are kind of at this point instinctually against it. Now, you know, there's going to be like, I think 25% or whatever the hell who are for every war ever. You know, when I walk through the parking lot, there's like three stickers out there of these, co these colors don't run and, you know, yeah, the Punisher logo game, with like the red, light and blue or whatever the hell else. And so, you know, the, like there are going to be people who are just every time, no matter what, like, hell yeah, American troops buckle up. We're going to go whoops some ass out right. yeah push those ruskies all the way back to moscow come on boys let's go and, and so like that's gonna happen that's a part of it uh but generally everybody is against it now the thing is they have to be against it enough to make the politicians care enough to prevent the executive from doing something which is difficult but not impossible um there there are some things going on like i know the senate passed a bill last week our resolution last week you know saying that we support Ukraine and their territorial integrity and whatever the hell. But Rand Paul did make them put in something that says that, hey, 
this is not an authorization for use of military force. Now, clearly it wasn't, and it's completely stupid that he had to do it, but that those things are happening just kind of as the current politics are playing out, I think is important and a good start. Just today, uh, a strange coalition formed of like Paul Gosar, Matt Gates, AOC, what? all like demanding that like, yeah, Biden cannot like, do any military intervention in Ukraine without congressional approval. So like a very strange coalition, but a, one I'm not going to reject, you know, Hey, whatever. If Matt Gates, you know, yeah. What is his, flyer, what is his know, like, angle on that? Honestly, I don't care. It doesn't matter right now, but yeah, you know, like they're offering uh, something that I, I'll take like if, because I think I see um, there's a potential for a repeat in Syria. Like you remember the mass demonstrations that kind of yeah. went on before Syria. And I think, do you think there's a possibility that that could happen if there's some type of organizing to, you know, or even if it just goes back to Congress, do you think that could end up like putting the nail in the coffin on that one? and being like, yeah, we're not going. Well, I mean, Biden's pretty against it. Right. I, I guess, you know, the, the, I, I had made a joke with somebody yesterday about how, you know, like good thing Biden's doing all right in everything because he yeah. seems to be like the the stopper in the cork in the administration like That's i don't know anybody overlooked. who's more realistic on it than he is and certainly kamala harris would be terrifying if she was in this position who knows what the hell she would do i think and he so, is overlooked on that that aspect where it's like he's doesn't he said very clearly in the beginning like we're not going to war for this place right Right. Well, I mean, this is like the one good thing about Joe Biden is he's a child of the Cold War. And so he remembers what the map used to look like and where the hell Ukraine is. And, you know, when the Soviet Union existed, where Ukraine was, uh, you know, as it was just, you know, the Ukraine, a state of like Texas is the United States state of the Soviet Union. Joe Biden remembers all that. Right. And so I, I think that is uh, probably something very beneficial uh at, at this time i don't know like it is it's terrible that you know joe biden's the president we don't have somebody who's negotiating some kind of deal with putin that actually would I, i'm not suggesting trump by the way that wasn't like no, no, uh, no. oh i wish trump no, no, was no, I, was, no, I was just gonna say that like i i gotta give it to biden like as crazy as he is like best president i've seen in a while like leave afghanistan not go to war for ukraine like that's like yeah see but the time president's done I would give it time. Yeah. So I, I guess here's the problem, like on the Afghanistan thing, he may kill more people with his sanctions this winter than the U.S. killed. In yeah, that's a big part of it. That's a huge and so part of you got to be able to follow through. It, it's great that he isn't going to put American troops into Ukraine. But what he should have done is negotiated with Putin when he came into office and fixed what Trump screwed up by getting out of the open skies, the INF treaty, and then, you know, seriously talk about closing the door on NATO membership, at least eastward expansion, get the missile systems the hell out of eastern Ukraine. And what the, like, you know, the first year he's in office, he has uh, U.S. warships in the Black Sea 162 days. You know, that's pretty much a Russian lake at this point. And so the fact that he's got uh, the the U.S. destroyers in there with, you know, they have the uh, Aegis um, missile defense systems, with our, which are just Patriot missile systems for uh, ships. And so all those could be loaded up with Tomahawk missiles, put nuclear uh, weapon tips on them and launch them at Russia. Like those are all things that Russia has to consider. Um, and, and so, yeah, so this is almost... 
not actually, but almost the worst of the two options, right? Saying that he's not going to defend Ukraine, but at the same time, not actually negotiating with Russia, basically just puts the Ukrainians through the meat grinder, right? And it's the same thing that he did in Afghanistan. He doesn't have the courage to actually do the right thing. And so he takes this tap step that kills tons of people. Well, yeah, that's one thing I'm bring up is that in response to this, all the recognition of the Eastern states, you know, the Eastern oblasts, and then like the supposed moving in or maybe not of Russian troops. Um, what, I don't know how to phrase this. <laughs> what do you think like the long-term goal is here? Like does Russia stay or, you know, in that area, does it become like a Crimea or do you think they'll just kind of leave it as the Republic and hands off? But I, you know, the sanctions will like kill these people, but what's left to sanction is my question. Like, what do you sanction in like Ukraine, you know, for corruption? What do you sanction in Russia for like intervention? Like there's nothing left for the country to sanction. And like, that's our only tool now. And we see it doesn't work in Venezuela. We see it doesn't work in Iran. We see it doesn't work in Russia. What, what's left to sanction on this planet that we haven't sanctioned? What's left to sanction in Russia? I mean, that I think that's one major problem. And there's been a few good articles in the past couple days daniel larison had one there was one running at the mises institute basically that it's going to be very hard for the west to unroll sanctions here that do more damage to the russian economy than the western economy russia's been preparing for this i think the the putin has rightfully calculated that sweeping sanctions would come on his country essentially no matter what it did as long as he attempted to have any kind of foreign policy uh even if he made concessions like allowing nato membership on the russian border uh that would never be enough and so they they would just continue to push and push and push and so he you know, decide that his country would be sanctioned and has taken steps like uh, moving closer to uh, China, more deeper economic ties with China and preparing his country for this, which apparently he did. Western countries need Russian energy. That's a real issue. They have to have it. And if not, the energy prices are going to go way up. And so, yeah, I mean, a major sanctions campaign, they could sanction a lot. I don't think it's really going to help. They're talking about sanctioning Putin in his inner circle. I think that could be problematic long term for diplomacy, uh, kind of like we've seen with North Korea, where they actually use the sanctions on the North Korean government to prevent South Korea from doing any kind of diplomacy without the U U.S. involved uh, with North Korea, which is really a shame. So, you know, the these things can have long term consequences, but none really negative for the Russian government. It's not like Putin has a bunch of beach houses in Miami that the U.S. is going to sanction and seize or, you know, I, I, I'm sure sure that anybody in any of these uh, countries, Venezuela, Iran, Cuba, Russia, China, uh, go on down the list. If you have even a remotely opposition government, if you have any meaningful assets overseas, my guess is that you're pulling them back home, right? Like the, the sanctions that have been uh, levied on foreign governments in the past, particularly like what, six, seven years have been absolutely yeah. uh, crazy. So created all its funds and they're our ally, you know, like. <laughs> Right. And, and I mean, we've seriously considered uh, sanctioning Turkey over buying the Russian S-400 well, uh, air We have hit him with some sanctions and then we cut him off from the F-35. So, I mean, they were a partner on that. That's a money out of their pocket, you know. And Oh, it was money out of our pocket, too, though, because yeah. uh, Turkey made a whole bunch of parts for the F-35. That's and, what I'm saying. And now yeah, they got to find another place. To... This one. And yeah. 
the pilots were even here in Texas getting yep. ready to train on that. Yeah, they got pulled back mm-hmm. home. Like, sorry, you ain't getting one, boys. That was great. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, hey, that's the thing is like, there's this whole like other parallel economy now, right? You don't yep. have to be in the Western sphere. There's a mm-hmm. whole other powerhouse on the other side of the world that's cranking out the same exact stuff that we do. And they're willing right. to offer it without any preconditions. And that's China, yeah. you know? And I well, think- and- as long as anybody like Russia or, or anyone can turn to China, that'll be an option, you know? Right. And I mean, just, you know, a, a good example, of this is uh, Venezuela and Iran, mm-hmm. where Iran is giving Venezuela uh, petrochemicals things because uh, Venezuela's crude oil is super, super heavy. So yeah, it's hard to get out of the ground without the, the diluting agents. And so Iran is giving those to Venezuela. I mean, the U.S. does its best to pirate the, the ships if it can, but usually they get by with it. And so when they do, uh, it, you know, and they they have doubled yeah i think almost back to a million barrels a day of venezuela is exporting because of iran return to turkey uh turkey after the uk held on to venezuela's gold they're like all right we'll send it to turkey to get processed so erdogan started processing venezuelan gold he's like okay the uk won't give it to you we'll do it so yeah these countries they're building like a non-aligned movement basically you know it's this return of like an unofficial but still non-aligned movement of these states they're just like you don't really have to listen to anyone you know, and there's these two people are like, these well, three powers now are concerned with each other and we can kind of just hang out and play off both, you know, and Erdogan's been a, a real killer on that one. He knows what he's doing. But yeah, um, I don't know. And Jack, did you have anything else? Uh, uh, not really. No. Oh, OK. How about this? Uh, what's going on with the cyber attacks? I, I honestly don't know. I saw today. Uh, the Pentagon press pers- spokesperson John Kirby uh, w- would not commit to saying that those were actually happening, were actually Russia. And so I will, I mean, look, it is the Ukrainian government. This It's a government, it's a corrupt government. I don't know how often their websites go down, like because of bad servers or people not showing up. To, like, you know, these kind of things do happen. Also, if it's, they just have poor cybersecurity and a lot of cybercrime in Ukraine, which I think there is like quite a bit of cybercrime in Ukraine. I mean, there, there's plenty of people who have the ability to carry out these kind of attacks. And so it's very possible it is Russia. I think that one, you know, thing we have to realize if we're talking about like advanced warfare in 2022, cyber attacks are probably going to be very significant and part of it right if you could turn off the power in kiev it's probably going to make it a lot harder for their military to get where their military needs to go right that these are all realities in fact it was what like two weeks ago that there was some uh, so you know it's funny when it's uh when it's a russian hacker doing anything it's a hacker all the time if it's somebody who's doing something against russia then it's a hacktivist and so they uh there's this article i think either in wired or gizmo about these hacktivists who had uh shut down the belarusian rail lines and prevented russian military equipment like who knows like it was probably like a half hour delay or something like that but they made a big deal out of it and so these things go on 
on and happen. And it, it's very possible that Russia is doing some of it. I would fully expect that they would if they are actually thinking about moving ahead uh, with some kind of actual uh, major attack on Ukraine. Or, you know, even if they are like just looking to like either retaliate for sanctions or add some concessions from uh, Western countries, like cyber attacks could be a way to do that without uh, kinetic attacks, you know, actual physical military moving in that would, I, I think, provoke a stronger response from countries. So I, like some of it could be, but I would not say it's Russia until there's some pretty solid evidence because how many fake attacks have they attributed to Russia in the past five right, years? Right, that's what I'm saying. Well, I saw like an I was... update today where it's like, oh, the cell phone service in the Donbass is out. And it's like, I've known people there, like the phone service is absolute dog shit. It <laughs> has been forever. Like, it's terrible. It's always been terrible. You know, it's a place that gets shelled every once in a while. Like, your right. phone service sucks. Like, does it surprise me that any, like, additional people coming in right now would, like, overload their system? Like, no, not at all. So there is, like, yeah, a lot of stuff. And like you said, Ukraine, that's the thing. is like, why Ukraine isn't in the EU right now? Because they're so corrupt, you know? Every rule that's been placed forward of, like, hey, clean up your act, man. Like, they cannot abide by it. They fail every time. They never meet a single benchmark. And, like, people forget. Like, yeah, it's – I don't even think, you know – the who was it the uh poroshenko like he was obviously like oh kind of like pro nato pro eu but are you still like ukrainian nationalists you still play off both sides they all do it and like they're just they're all grifters you know and that's the one big thing they like they look for self-enrichment so yeah. it's tough to deal with ukraine even as a western power because like this is the hardest one to sell is like an efficient running democracy in europe it doesn't really look like one you know right no i mean this is the Ukrainian government after the 2014 coup was in part constructed by Joe Biden. And so, I mean, if you think that the American government's incompetent, then uh, just imagine what's happening in the Ukraine, right? Yeah. And I think like Blinken and them are at the, you know, state and stuff, they're running like a sort of shadow government under, you know, they're doing the, uh, the Kissinger with like, oh, I'm going to go back and report that Nixon's a madman, you know, and I keep him under control. Uh, and then like Blinken goes out and says something totally like contradictory of what Biden says and like much more aggressive, you know, it's like these people think, well, the grandpa won't notice. So I think they get to run around running their mouths. No, that's, that's definitely a concern that I have, especially, you know, in, I guess, some fairness to Biden, the COVID thing is absolutely huge and the like, biggest thing going on. And so if he's spending all of his time, you know, trying to battle the, you know, COVID outbreak or something like, like that, and he's not paying attention to the foreign policy slate as much, then yeah, something like this could definitely happen. Now, you know, he should, should just make sure he doesn't put a bunch of lunatics in charge and things like that. And, you know, when you invite Victoria Newland into your administration, you might as well uh, have just made Dick Cheney your vice president, right? Apparently, there's no pool to draw from for either party in Washington except for the neoconservatives. Both parties have to dip into them to run their foreign policy now. So, right? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's pretty wild. You got John Bolton with one, and then you got like Anthony <laughs> Blinken with the other. And like, this is wild, you know? But yeah, all right. Um, I think it kind of catches us up. I know there's a lot more going on and a lot more will happen. So if you have time, maybe we'll have you back again. Yeah, no, absolutely. Anytime and maybe we could get uh, Will on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, get him on. I mean, he's always ignoring. He avoids me. I've tried to get him on. <laughs> so make him come on. 
All right. Well, I'll do. It. And uh, just, uh, you know, if I can plug a couple things real yeah, quick. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Will I'm Porter has uh, officially joined the Libertarian Institute team. He's uh, he's on the news team with me over there. So if you want to check out the Institute, we're running stuff on the blog all the time. Several yeah. news stories every day. And uh, yeah, Conflicts of Interest, my uh, show that I do. Uh, we have video and audio version. So if you want like the, the we, all the stories, everything we write up, we got it up there and then maps and things like that sometimes. And uh, I put together the viewpoints at antiwar.com. Yeah, I, I recommend your uh, podcast because like you guys, like you hit on topics I like and like, um, you know, I think you guys had stuff on like Artsock and stuff when that was happening. And like, you follow like these conflicts that don't necessarily get a bunch of attention here. So I think that's definitely something to follow, like for people interested in foreign policy who don't necessarily know where to look because it's so confusing, you know, because so much is ignored by the U S media, obviously. So, and yeah, anti-war is always good because anti-war is all over, you know, everything all the time, basically, as far as small conflicts, large conflicts, you know? So yeah. Awesome, man. Thank you for coming on and yeah, we'll have you back. And absolutely, thank you guys so much. Okay, yeah, so one thing I wanted to ask you about, and I kind of wanted to save it because, I don't know, like our guest... You know, he seems like a way more serious reporter, and I didn't want to uh, bog him down with uh, all my stupid questions about Ukraine and uh, its history. But I wanted to talk about, like, the neo-Nazi connection in Ukraine and, like, possibly Canada's involvement and now the United States. Yeah, I wanted to bring up Canada. And, like, I would say, like, the United States has been way more hands-off with the uh, neo-Nazi contingent in Ukraine than, like, the United States has. But, um... And they're both invested, obviously. These militias were, like, the Azov Battalion were initially integrated into the security forces, so it's not like they're, like, that separate. Um, but the thing is, that like, Canada has an ultra-nationalist, like, Ukrainian diaspora foreign minister. And Canada, for all their little liberal bullshit, has been, like, the biggest funder of the Azov Battalion directly and, like, training them and providing them arms, which is, like... So the fascist, you know, the fascist militia. And there's also, like, a large popular movement, too, of, like, the Banderites, who are people who honor Stepan Bandera, who was a fucking uh, collaborator with the Nazis during World War Two. And there's been streets named after Bandera. There's been, like, you know, plazas named after Bandera since the Maidan. Can we t- So I'm trying to understand, like, what is, what is the upside for supporting the Azov Battalion for Canada? I genuinely think it's the influence of the foreign minister. Like, yes, all Western powers want to be involved in, like, this little standoff with Russia, right? But why Canada gets so involved, it has to be, like, this Ukrainian diaspora in Canada that's insanely right-wing. I think the Ukrainian diaspora here is pretty fucking right-wing, honestly, man. Like, in Michigan, I, I think... I don't talk to them. I mean, well, go talk to them and tell them, like, are you Russian? Let's see what they say. I don't know, but... They all have, like, the tridents and everything on the back of their cars. Like, I don't trust it. So, I, I don't know. I think there's definitely... Look at how, like, a lot of, like, older Poles and stuff are. Like, immigrant Poles in this country. And, like, in this state. Like, they're kind of pissed off people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I don't see the Ukrainians as being too much different. But, um, 
I think there's definitely just uh, in Canada there's like this weird influence of the Canadian like Ukrainian diaspora in Canada through the foreign minister who's provided like direct aid to Azov and like these and right sector which was the other like right wing militia that was like real big during the Maidan protests so I don't know it, there is connections you, you were, it wasn't wrong and yeah it was like we just didn't have time to fit it in but <laughs> yeah there's a lot there and now there's just articles like why are Nazis here yeah it's funny how that works out would Canada share that video of, like, Nazis marching down the street? It's just, like, uh, that's always how it happens, right? It's, like, oh, how did this happen? Oh, yeah. Oh. And Canada, I think, shared a video of, like, the them marching down the street in with banners in English. Like. Really? <laughs> yeah. Banners in English with, like, the right sector flags and shit like that. And, like, all these flags that, like, symbolize, like, the groups inside. They love that little fucking dumbass circle room. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. The stupid lightning bolt. Their symbols are gay. They hammer and sickle's way better. But, yeah, they love dumb shit like that. And, like, the, like I said, that, that trident that you see on some Ukrainian flags, they love that shit. But that's fascinating. They love symbols. But, yeah, those guys are a legitimate thing. And, like, I, I think I've talked to somebody, you know, um, actually the, the guy who set up this interview who I used to work with uh, in Indie Media. And I talked, you know, he worries that, like, the Nazis could be the ones to, like, provoke something. You know what I mean? Like, Seems like a great opportunity for them right now. Yeah, through the chaos and, like, even though the Ukrainian army is probably not interested in fighting Russia to any real extent, you could see, like, how, well, what do you see in the Middle East? How an extremist group takes advantage of a situation like that, you know? So... These guys already operate in eastern Ukraine. Who's to say they won't do something? And, like, I don't know if they will. I don't know if the Ukrainian military will get in their way, but who knows. All right, so who you got? Um, South Ossetia 2 coming to theaters in eastern Ukraine. <laughs> That's about it. A breakaway region only acknowledged by, like, Russia and, like, Belarus and... Uh, probably South Ossetia. <laughs> just all the other breakaway republics will acknowledge it. Maybe North Korea. Uh, some weird, you know, just some random nations. Iran will probably acknowledge it. Um, and then it'll just be there. As things go with Russia, it'll just be a thing. Like Crimea. Yeah, I don't know. I would I would like to see some sort of, like, uh, mobilization against, like, ongoing conflict in Ukraine and Russia in the United States. Because it's just, like... But, like, we talked about in the interview, like, you know, um, Biden has said himself, like, I don't want aggression here. I, I feel like that is his way of saying one thing and doing another, because I, think I feel like they've been escalating. Because he's a big dick pimp. No. <laughs> you're jealous. No. Can you imagine what his fucking cock looks like? It's huge. No. <laughs> bigger than Trump's. I mean, I don't know, I don't want to speculate on size, but there's no way it's, like, normal. It's bigger than Trump's. I don't, I don't, I mean, it's, I'm just saying. Uh, he fucked Trump in the ass. Um, <laughs> if you saw it. That's how he won. Who? Biden. Oh, he fucked Trump in the ass, yeah. That's political science 101, and this has been <laughs> the left is dead. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>